I want to talk about why I think it's good to talk about equanimity at the beginning of learning the Brahma Viharas. Uh, instead of at the end, when you read classical lists of Brahma Viharas, it usually says metta karuna mudita upayaka, uh, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And it sounds like equanimity is the uh, crowning glory or the end point or what you come to when you've practiced all those other three different uh, states of heart. And I, in fact, believe that the opposite is true. I think that equanimity is the ground from which the three other states of heart uh, arise. And I'd like to explain that a little bit. I think that equanimity is very close to what mindfulness is. Uh, or uh, the state of equanimity might be the fruit of mindfulness practice or a period of sustained mindfulness maybe might be equanimity. It would mean a period of sustained, balanced, awake, alert, awareness of the present moment and being all right with it, accepting it, not struggling with it. Whatever its valence is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or disconcerting or dismaying, saying, well, that's what's happening, and I'll make a wise response and do the next moment in response to what's happening now. There's a way in which I think equanimity is uh, not only uh, synonymous with mindfulness, or at least sustained mindfulness, but it's actually the manifestation of a certain amount of wisdom. Because it's the wisest response to any moment knowing it clearly, not struggling with it, and making in that moment a balanced, um, thoughtful, wholesome response to it so the next moment will be as balanced and as wholesome and as awake. If, in fact, I forget, as I did, to turn on this tape recorder for the whole first hour, the balanced response is to turn it on for the second hour and uh, and just do that, and not hurry to re-say what I said. I'll say it again in some other way. There are anyway uh, all various permutations and combinations in different ways of saying that uh, the kindest way to live for oneself and for other beings is uh, thoughtfully and carefully and uh, with alert, um, understanding of the moment of the situation at that moment. So there's a way to say that equanimity is a manifestation of wisdom. And when we talk about mindfulness practice a lot, we talk about uh, paying attention in every moment to see what is true, naming the moment of experience, not struggling with the moment of experience. We talk about doing that not because it's just a, a cool thing to do, but because there's a certain fruit of that practice. And it's true that there's a way to think about the fruit of mindfulness practice of being in this moment, a moment of freedom and a moment of peace, not aiming at some mythical, hypothetical time in the future. moment of mindfulness is indeed a moment of freedom. But I think it's also true to say that in addition to that 
in the moment truth of a moment of mindfulness. The fact is also that sustained practice of mindfulness over time cultivates the capacity to maintain moments of mindfulness more of the time in that hypothetical future. And so what we're really hoping to develop through mindfulness practice is equanimity that comes not from uh, struggling the mind into some place of submission, but through the mind arriving at wisdom. The point of mindfulness practice, of seeing in the moment what's true, what's the truth of that moment, is not to be able to be a gigantic list maker of this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. I took a breath in, I took a breath out. I had a thought, I took another breath in, I took another breath out. That's not so valuable because it's just breaths and thoughts and body sensations and everybody has the same tremendous array and category of more or less the same stuff. But the point of mindfulness practice is to see over a period of time that there are certain fundamental truths that are the ground of our experience if we pay close enough attention. And those seeing of fundamental truths is what are called insights and it's assumed and understood that enough moments of direct insight of truth condition the mind to a certain wise response over time. So we see the fundamental truths of certain things in life you can change. Other things in life you can't change. Everything changes all the time. There are situations that we can ameliorate and situations that we're obliged to accept. Mindfulness practice is really sensible practice, common sense practice of seeing this is a change as one of the inevitable changes of life that I have to metabolize in some way. This is something that's happening that I can actually mitigate and change, so I will. And to live in that sort of wholesome, wise response to -to moment-to-moment experience, which leads eventually, one hopes and expects, to some place of equanimity. My grandfather used to say uh, about uh, dealing with difficult experiences in life, he had a phrase that he would say together so fast that it sounded like one word. He'd say, well, what are you going to do? That's life. And uh, when I was young, I thought that was just a thing that grandfathers said. And then when I got old, I realized that that was really very fundamental wisdom. What are you going to do? That's life. There are certain things in life that we're just going to have to deal with. And we can kick and scream, and that's one way of dealing with it. But it's not the most wholesome response, and it usually makes more pain in the mind than we had before. Or we can say, what are you going to do? That's life. I can't change this, so I have to accept it in some way. So that actually the ability to be, uh, to rest in equanimity requires a certain amount of wisdom. This is just the way things are. A friend of mine who said, uh, if you wanted things to be another way, if you're devoted to having things another way, if you insist that things be other than the way they are, which is that they change, that they're impermanent, so you came to the wrong planet. On this planet, this is what they do. So we're going to have to work with that one way or another. So I like to think about equanimity as being the fruit of mindfulness practice and really the, the goal of mindfulness practice. I can say it's a, synonym for, um, it's a synonym for wisdom, it's a synonym for peacefulness, 
in the sense of contentment. It's really a synonym for happiness, not necessarily joy or pleasure, but I, we don't have enough words in English for happiness. We, we, we tend to think that happiness, happy means pleased. Uh, and I think that the great uh, revolutionary news that I learned through this practice is that you don't have to be pleased in order to be happy, that you can be content um, and have things happening that you're not really pleased about. People say, what are you going to do? This is one of those things that happen in life. I can't change it, so I need to be with it in some way. And that happiness means the absence of struggle and the absence of bitterness and the absence of recrimination in the mind. It doesn't mean necessarily being pleased. So I like to teach about equanimity of all the Brahma Viharas because I think it's synonymous with mindful. I think it's synonymous with wise. I think it's synonymous with... uh, peacefulness, a non-struggling mind. That doesn't mean a non-responsive mind. certainly does not mean a non-responsive mind. And this is a very important thing to talk about. So I want to say something about uh, what are called the near enemies of the Brahma-viharas. And I'm pretty sure that Gil must have mentioned them this morning. But each of the four Brahma-viharas has a mind state that looks something like it and that might be uh, mistaken for it if uh, one is not alert. And the near enemy to equanimity is indifference. And somebody say, well, you know, that's just the way it is. Things come and go. There are famines here and uh, wars there and uh, injustices here and uh, abuses there. but." That's the way, and in the great wash of karma, it'll all take care of itself, and the picture is much bigger than I can have anything to do with, which really is a way of removing oneself from life experience, and probably out of aversion, not being able to look at the real difficulty of being alive on this planet, which requires a lot of courage to look at straightforwardly. And the real equanimity is not to say it's out of my hands, but to say, it's vast, but meantime I have hands, so I can do something, I can do as much as I can do, and then I'll know that I've done as much as I can do. don't have to struggle, I don't have to be bitter, I don't have to recriminate, but I can do as much as I can do. To be responsive, totally passionate in one's response, and totally uh, wise about not being attached to having more influence than one has. It's a tremendous thing to think about, to do the best you can and have that be enough. We can't do better than the best we can, but we can do that. So there's a very important difference between indifference, which sometimes masquerades as equanimity, and really true equanimity, which is passionate involvement in whatever way people can, and it will differ from one person to the next. But passionate, awake, appraisal of the situation, and uh, in, in everybody's own way, passionate response, and then saying, now this is the way it is. 
Another thing that sometimes uh, masquerades as equanimity or that people think is equanimity, it isn't, is tranquility. Because they, they, they sound kind of the same. It's a lot of, he's very tranquil and he's very equanimous. Tranquil is different from equanimity. Tranquil is tranquil. Tranquil is really another word for calm. Unruffleable. We'd say there was a was uh, there was no wind that day, so the lake was very smooth like glass. And there are minds times when the mind is quite tranquil. It's a certain kind of a feeling. It's really pervaded with calm. Equanimity doesn't mean calm. It just mean it actually means everything. That's what it means. The capacity to be equanimous means the capacity of the mind to hold whatever it is that's happening in a certain amount of balance. I used to think at the beginning of my meditation practice that uh, I'd become flattened out if I really meditated hard. I think that we all have that idea. We have a kind of a mmm feeling about, you know, we, we have a, a kind of socialization ethic that uh, pervades um, centers sometimes where people, because we spend a lot of time in silence, so we don't have a loud response, that people sometimes feel we're supposed to be totally muted in our emotional system. I had a fear that if I practiced hard enough, it would be as if a, a, a steamroller had run over my emotional system and I'd come out totally blah. But that doesn't happen to people. We're just the way that we are. I'm actually not more blah than I used to be. I'm less blah than I used to be. I think that I have a much wider range of passionate response. When I'm happy, I'm totally ecstatic. And when I'm grief-stricken, I really am grief-stricken much more, I think, than ever I knew I had the capacity to be. And I think it's because I'm not as afraid of emotional response as I used to be, that one of the sequelae of practice over time is that you get to experience a whole range of mind states and body states. Because if practice is just paying attention to what's going on over a course of time, everything goes on. And you discover that everything goes on, and we go on also, and we manage it one way or another. You get to see everything is manageable. Not everything is pleasant, but everything is manageable. Everything is sustainable. And so I'm not as frightened by big swings of emotion. Doesn't mean that I'm any more, um, any less thoughtful about what emotions I express. Don't necessarily think that's made me more volatile. I think I actually, volatility has never been a big problem of mine, but. I don't think it's made me more volatile. It's made me more in touch with what I feel. Many people say, tell me that uh, having had a problem of volatility, like losing their temper very easily, they don't do that as much. They do that less. Um, I think that what, but, and still feel upset or angry or irritated, but that what gets built in, and which is part of equanimity, which is really the manifestation of wisdom, is the ability in any moment even to feel tremendous anger and say, what would be a good way to put this out now that will be good for me and good for the other person 
How will I manage to make my point? What's a wise way to do that? So volatility, I think, goes down, but passion maybe goes up. That's at least my experience. Maybe you could reflect on yours a little bit. So those are some of the things that people sometimes mistake equanimity for, tranquility or indifference. Tranquility, by the way, is different from indifference. Tranquility is just tranquility. Indifference, I think, is the mind with aversion in it, looking away and saying, I actually don't want to see that, so I'm going to pretend that I'm cool about it, but I'm actually just afraid to look at it or don't feel like looking at it or I don't have the strength to look at it. or um, One way or another, it's a manifestation of aversion, I think. I think that equanimity is the ground for the three other uh, divine abodes, for metta, for loving kindness, for karuna, for compassion, and for mudita, which is sympathetic joy, and I'll tell you why. I think three kinds of things happen to us, neutral things, pleasant things, and unpleasant things. There are three flavors of experience. That's fundamental Buddha Dharma. I think if you check it out, you will find that every moment of experience has one of those three feelings, and it's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Variations on a theme, but fundamentally three. There are three spontaneous movements of the heart or mind that happen just responsively to those three kinds of experiences, or that tend to happen. One is that when experiences are pleasant, there's a tendency to want more of it. We say, oh, this is good. We kind of move over towards it. There's a pretty person or a good smell or a nice experience or a good thought. I'll have a little more of it. An experience is unpleasant. We tend to move away from it. Uh Uh-oh, this is frightening. This is something that's unpleasant, uncomfortable. Unpleasant person, loud voice, uncomfortable situation. I'll move away from it move away. Situations are neutral. We tend to fall asleep in them, either literally or at least, uh, if not literally asleep, we think about something else while it's going on. You notice that when you drive to San Francisco from here, in your car. All of a sudden, people discover it. They're at the toll bridge. How did they get there? They haven't, haven't been actively steering, steering, pedaling, pedaling. I mean, not really thinking about what you're doing all the way until you get there, and you suddenly find you're at the bridge. How did I get here so fast? Because the mind, in neutral gear, was telling itself stories and thinking about it, and that's fine. I mean, it's incredible how much heavy equipment we can operate without paying attention to it. (laughs) And for most of us who are skilled drivers, that's really all right. You just drive along. But if someone suddenly cuts into the lane in front of you, All of a sudden, it's not a neutral situation. All of a sudden, it's an unpleasant situation, and the mind reacts with aversion in different ways and sometimes makes stories about you never can trust drivers. Sometimes people do worse than stories. They shout or they make gestures or they do something. But the mind responds in an aversive way to an unpleasant situation. Or sometimes there's something pleasant on the freeway, like you think you read something good on the license plate of the person in front of you or on the bumper sticker, but you didn't quite catch it. So you start running after them to get it. You drive a little closer. Doesn't that ever happen to you? You really move over to that pleasant situation lest you miss it. 
maybe even driving a little too close. So that uh, absolutely mundane examples to see that that's what the mind does. It moves towards pleasant experiences and away from unpleasant experiences, falls asleep in neutral experiences. The mind that rests in a certain amount of equanimity has those same tendencies as well. But it does them in a slightly different way. It does them in a way that doesn't have quite so much uh, hidden personal self-serving interest in it. The mind, I think, that rests in equanimity stays pretty much alert, that doesn't fall asleep in neutral situations. So it walks around in a neutral situation. And one of the ways that neutral situations um, uh, reflect in equanimity is they call forth loving-kindness. You're walking around and you're in a pretty good mood and content. You have a good heart on things. You appreciate things. People go by, you think that's a nice-looking person. Or, it's a pretty day. Or We feel good. We say to people in the supermarket, oh, you just have a few things, why don't you go ahead of me? I think that the general state, our essential nature, is, is generally kind and thoughtful and compassionate. If we aren't frightened or preoccupied, or we're, I think, essentially meant, built to be peaceful people with loving response. And in neutral situations, I think we tend to do that. And that's really the natural reflection of equanimity in neutral situations, just friendliness. I think another way when we say loving-kindness, it becomes like some big deal, like a loving-kindness. It's actually just friendliness. It's really friendly response. Some people have a friendly response. Um, and it picks up the whole day for other people. You know, back to the Golden Gate Bridge. The toll-takers on the Golden Gate Bridge Tend to, uh, many of them are very friendly. You go by, they say a good word to you. Have a nice day. Have a great evening. It probably makes their day much better to do that, and it certainly makes my day better when they do that. I figured they're tremendous Dharma teachers in those toll booths. I was once driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, preoccupied about something or other. I was, I don't know, grumbling in my mind about something or other. As on my way to the opera, I was meeting a friend, a friend I love, an opera I love, beautiful night, and I'm driving along grumbling in my mind. And I drive into the toll gate, and the, uh, the, the, the person in the toll booth says to me, have a great evening, a nice way. And it, was, it, it could have been the highest guru in the world. said, have a great evening. And it was like, zap, I woke up, and I thought, what am I doing? I feel good. I'm going to the opera, which I love, with a friend that I love. Uh, is the lights are falling in San Francisco. The lights are going on. The dark is coming on. The lights are going on in the buildings. It's perfectly beautiful. And I'm making myself miserable by telling myself some grumbly story. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's like a major guru in the toll booth on the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> So that there's a value to metta because we spread it around to people. You don't have to be a major dharma teacher or anything else. You say to somebody, you have a few things in your basket. I've got so many. Would you like to go ahead of me? whole person's day picks up. Imagine what we could do for each other 
with random acts of kindness. We put bumper stickers, practice random acts of kindness, and then we drive grumbling. It's amazing. It is so easy to improve the quality of our internal lives and at the same time improve the quality of the lives of everybody, well, of everybody around us. We're waiting to do some heroic deed. And all we have to say to somebody is, I hope you're having a nice day. It's not that big of a heroic deal. And it's a terrific thing to do in somebody's life. That could be the response of the natural, happy, equanimous heart. It's friendly. Metta is not more complicated than friendly. Karuna comes out of it as well, and Mudita comes out of it as well. And I only want to talk about it a little bit because people will talk about it at some length tomorrow. But I want to tell you about how I think that they are both um, uh, grounded in equanimity, which is why I think equanimity ought to be the first of the Brahma-viharas that we teach. When uh, painful, unpleasant situations arise, when we're walking along in a friendly and a peaceful mood, mind resting in equanimity, and we see a painful situation, a homeless person or a hurt person or a sick person or any of the many signs of pain about being alive in a body in a world. Often we notice what's happening and feel various degrees of response to it. It's hard to look at pain straight in the face. I think one of the things that we often do is we don't look at it exactly straight. We almost look at it and then we try to think about something else, and we don't really look at it. Compassion in the Brahma-vihara literature is described as the quivering of the heart in response to the recognition of pain. I love that. I think it's such a beautiful thing to say, that the heart is so unblocked that it quivers, actually, when it sees pain. Do you know what that reminds me of? If you do a tuning fork, if you do thing... And there's another tune, there's another thing that will vibrate right near it, that that will set up vibrations and that the other bowl will vibrate in response to this bowl's vibration. I love to think that the heart can be so unbarred that it could totally vibrate in response to other people's pain. And it requires, in order to do that, some amount of wisdom, because it's hard to look at pain. And the wisdom is, there is pain in life. There just is pain in life. Life is difficult. There's a first noble truth. Life is suffering. That's just really true. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do everything that we can to relieve suffering and pain in whatever way we can, whenever we can do it. But it still means that we have to be able to look at that straight, straight out and not avoid it. So I think the capacity to really be compassionate depends on some amount of equanimity. Because if we can't stand the idea that there's so much pain in life, then we can't really be compassionate. We have to hide our eyes a little bit from it and look the other way and tell ourselves stories. And they're mildly... um, They're stories that are tinged with aversion. And uh, they're what create 
uh, what sometimes looks like compassion, but is actually its near enemy, which is pity. I feel very badly for that person. But that means that I over here feel badly for that person. And there's some distance. It's not quivering in response. Because in that is often, I am not in that person's place because I have cleverly arranged my life and that person didn't cleverly arrange their life or something or other like that. So there's a certain amount of distance from it. And the really wisdom place around that is that life works out more or less painful for all of us for who knows what huge variety of reasons, but there is a lot of pain in life. So that's something to say about compassion, and I'll let that be because tomorrow there will be a lot of talk about compassion, but just to say that its foundation is in equanimity because otherwise what comes out is some uh, skewed version of compassion, something like pity that has a little bit of um, aversion in it, a little bit of self. The other of the Brahma-vihara is the mudita response, which is uh, sympathetic joy, which is one of my favorite things to think about, is the absolute joyous response to somebody else's good fortune, which seems like it would be an easy thing to have, much easier than, um, than compassion, which means dealing with the pain in the world. Murita is really acknowledging the fact that sometimes in life there are really wonderful moments of good fortune. Somebody gets married or has a baby or gets an award or wins a sweepstakes. Or um, Does it happen to you as it happens to me that you're uh, watching the television and somebody wins the uh, publisher's clearinghouse and you see them open the door and they say, you have won, this person has, you have won, won $10 million. And that person gets hysterical and they cry and they laugh and jump up and down. And you feel great. Look, that poor person just doing the ironing and here comes $10 million. And, uh, and they're so excited and you feel great for them. And in a little while you think to yourself, I wonder what would happen if that happened to me. And Ed McMahon knocks on my door. What would I do? And then you think, well, I'd give it away, most of it. (laughs) At least three quarters of it. For sure, half of it. (laughs) And start to think about, well, I could do this with that, that with it, this with it, that with it, this with it, that with it. And all of a sudden, the mind is filled with schemes for money, what to do with money that you don't have that it's not going to happen. And before that person won, you were fine. You're just watching the television. And all of a sudden, there are all these things that you don't have that you could have if you had that money. And the mind's all turmoiled up about it. Because we can't just say, great for that person. Who even knows if it's great for that person? It's complicated to win $10 million. But, but even assuming it's great for them, it's hard for us to say, great for the other person without thinking, I wish I had a little bit of that great for ourselves. It happens all the time in areas where somebody does something that you really wish you had done, or somebody gets something. You want so much to have a relationship. You're dying to have a relationship. And then your best friend, who has been commiserating with you because neither of you have a relationship, 
suddenly falls into a great relationship and there's a piece of you that's totally pleased for your friend. And then there's a piece of you that's thinking, my friend has this great relationship. Why didn't it happen to me also? I could have had that also. I'm just as good as a friend. You know, why should they just get that? There's a little piece, or they should have it. May they thrive with their relationship. But I'd like to have it also. You know, I'm putting in a request. I'd like to have that also. <laughs> it's hard to just rejoice in other people's good fortune without thinking how our own fortunes could be increased. And to be able to say, just as we do with pain, there's a certain amount of pain in life. And who knows why it shows up in this life and not in that life. There's a certain amount of good fortune and joy. And it shows up here and here and here and here and sometimes right here in our life and sometimes in other lives. And how to rejoice tremendously when it shows up in another life. The Dalai Lama, when he teaches about it, says it's much better odds to be able to rejoice in other people's good fortune than in your own because there are so many other people and the chances of you being happy are immeasurably enhanced if you could just rejoice in other people's good fortune. He's right. You know. Suppose we went around saying, my practice is mudita. I'm going to look at everybody who's having a good day and I'm just going to get excited about it. I'm going to say, wow, look at that person doing this or doing that. It's terrific to be able to do that. So that's why I think those are the three possible responses of the heart. There are three kinds of things that happen to us, three kinds of experiences that arise, pleasant ones and unpleasant ones and neutral ones. And in the pleasant ones, we have the opportunity to say, far out, a pleasant thing is happening. That's great. To whomever it's happening, I'm appreciating it also. Unpleasant thing is happening. An unpleasant thing is happening here. That's the way it is in life. There is a lot of pain. I wonder if I can ameliorate this pain. I either can or I can't, so I will or I won't. And that's the way it is, and I really feel for the fact that there is pain. I'm really attentive to what I could do. And here's just a plain, neutral situation. So there's, I could fall asleep in it, or I could stay awake in it and use the moment to say, have a good day. You want to go ahead of me in the supermarket with your stuff? In, our, um, in, our, in the Wednesday morning class, from time to time we inspire ourselves to do um, what sounds like Boy Scout practice. But we uh, take a resolve, you know, like take a vow, that every day in our lives we're going to do three random acts of kindness. I mean, we all have those bumper stickers. We could do them, uh, which mean you stand in the bank and you say to the person, you want to go ahead of me? Or in the supermarket, or you help somebody across the street, or you do something for somebody. And... The incredible thing is it not only makes the other people happy, but it makes you so happy. Too. I mean, when we come back and we say, okay, so how did everybody do on the homework? <laughs> and sometimes we say to each other, you want to tell people that we're doing this homework in the Wednesday morning class is going to make us sound very foolish, like, uh, uh, what do you call the campfire girls when they're seven, like bluebirds or something? <laughs> it's going to make us sound like bluebirds instead of Buddhists, or you know, because uh, it sounds like very simple practice. But suppose everybody here, there's probably 100 and what, 150 people in this room? Suppose all these 150 people 
did for the next week three acts a day, that would be 450 acts a day times seven, that's about 30,000 acts of kindness would generate in Marin County for this week. Maybe it'd be terrific. Who knows what would happen from that? But we get happier when we do it. So those are the ground. That's why really equanimity practice is the ground. So you say, well, how do I practice equanimity? Can I sit and make equanimity resolves? There are equanimity resolves. Just as there are metta resolves, may you be free of danger, may you be mental happiness, or may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be well. There are equanimity resolves that say things like, all individuals are heir to their own karma. Just really a, a statement of wisdom. Things happen to people for diverse reasons. Who knows what? Even if you're not comfortable about karma being from a previous lifetime, if previous lifetimes don't resonate for you. What's happening to us now is a result of everything that happened to us, at least in this life. So we are all heir to our own experience. And there's a certain amount of things that we can do to assist other people in their journey. But we can't really take on their journey. We can be friends to each other and assistance to each other. All individuals are heir to their own karma. It's really a statement of uh, wisdom. I was looking up, um, Sharon has uh, uh, in her wonderful book on the Brahma Viharas, which I really want to urge all of you to get her a more modern version of um, the equanimity reflections. So I think I'll tell them to you. The traditional one is all beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. That's a the more um, traditional, somewhat ancient way of saying it. She said the other possibilities for a more contemporary interpretation are, may we all accept things as they are. May we be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. I will care for you, but I cannot keep you from suffering. I wish you happiness, but I cannot make your choices for you. Those are pretty wise things to say to people, aren't they? They're actually pretty wise things to say to yourself in response to what's happening with other people. I wish you happiness, but I can't make your choices for you. I wish you, I will care for you, but I cannot keep you from suffering. What that does is it really calms the heart says, I see what's true here. I'm not in denial. Indifference is a little bit in denial. Equanimity is not in denial. says, I definitely see what's true here. And I definitely know what are the limits of my being able to intervene. I do the best I can, and then I wish you well. So it's not at all denying what you see or what you'd like, but really saying, That's the limits for what we can do, really. 
So sometimes when people practice equanimity as part of Brahma-vihara practice, they might sit and say those resolves over and over to themselves, just as people say the metta resolves over and over to themselves. It seems to me, actually, that uh, of all of the four Brahma-viharas, because tomorrow when you hear about Mudita and Karuna, there will be different resolves for each of them that people practice saying. The equanimity resolves are the closest, I think, to the description of mindfulness practice. I see what's true. I accept it in the moment. I respond in the next moment. I do what I can, I did what I can, it's what it is. It's really a restatement of mindfulness practice. In a certain sense, I think you could think about mindfulness practice being the ground that leads, the practice that leads to equanimity being the ground from which the Brahma-viharas flourish. There's another thing that I'd like to say and maybe we'll sit a little bit and have some questions. I think that the Brahma Viharas are the natural state of the mind and heart. I don't think that... Uh, I didn't always understand them. I thought that they were something that we needed to cultivate because we certainly offer metta retreats and people go and do Brahma Vihara practice as if it's something that we have to work up to that is not part of our natural endowment. I think that there are certainly ways to practice, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that practice of samadhi and the cultivation of jhanas, which are really the intense mind states of samadhi, is not valuable in terms of um, putting us in touch with our natural capacity of the heart But I do think it's the natural capacity of the heart. I think fundamentally, the natural capacity, the essence of the heart, unclouded by hindrance energies, unclouded by confusion, is loving and compassionately responsive and uh, resonates with joy, depending on what the situation is. And it's wonderful to think that because then you don't have to think I have to learn something entirely new. All I have to do is relax into being my true self, which is what I think this is all about. So that there's a way in which you can say, well, what should I do? Should I do mindfulness? Should I be with my breath? Should I make those resolves? It doesn't matter. All of the above are the right answer because they're all very skillful means for developing that capacity of the mind to rest for a moment in alert appreciation of the moment without struggle and say, what should I do now? That's really what all of these practices are about. So I think we should sit for a little bit. Would you like to do that? Sit for a little bit and then... <coughs> I'd like to suggest something special for the sitting. I'd 
like to suggest that you sit with your eyes open. And that you not sit totally still, like a statue with your head. I'd like to suggest that you look around a little bit, look for a while, look at a group of folks. Maybe you want to move yourself so you can see a group of folks. Or, and look at people. This is what I learned when I was walking outside, by the way. I learned two things. I learned that in walking back and forth at a normal rate around groups of people, I had forgotten that I can't say all four of my phrases to each person because they go in and out of my range of viewing too fast. Didn't you notice that? Okay. So I have to say my phrases over and over, and then it doesn't matter. People are in my field of wishing well. It doesn't matter which phrase they move in and out of. The the sentiment is approximately the same. So I make my song going, and then I walk by people, and I think this or that. I also noticed that um, it's nice to look at people and uh, appreciate them, And yet, sometimes people look away, I think partly because we've been socialized here, especially people who've done retreat practice, to what's called in in, uh, monastic practice a custody of the eyes. So we tend to peek who that is. Okay, I'm wishing them well. Look over there who that is. I'm wishing them well. Look over there. Okay, I'm wishing them well. Lest it would be embarrassing for that other person to see that you're wishing them well. You know, you can look a person in the face and wish them well. I mean, this this style of custody of the eyes is really appropriate for monastic practice because we go around, when we're doing a 10-day retreat and we keep looking at people, you're really intruding on their space. So it's a, it's a delicacy of monastic practice, a nicety, a, um, an etiquette of monastic practice to keep that custody of the eyes. But in our life, we look at people in the face, and it's weird to kind of go around like that. So I really want for us to practice being real with each other. I'm sure that we all, when we're thinking these thoughts, must be feeling loving sentiments. So it's so odd to feel loving sentiments (laughs) and be looking down. So I'd like you to practice. I have a friend of mine who who also teaches a lot of metta all over the world. And he said, you teach people metta with, your eyes, with their eyes closed? And I said, well, yes, I do. You know, he said, well, don't do that. Then open the eyes, look around. So it's wonderful because if you look around at people, the immediate thing that you realize is there's, there's all these folks in bodies just like I am, in lives just like I am, with my same struggles and variations on a theme. Everybody's got variations on the theme of struggle and pain and wishes, as I do, to be happy. And really, it's looking at other people and realizing that we each of us have our particular local drama, but each of us wants to be happy. And when we get that from each other, without even telling each other our whole story, that's a huge piece of wisdom teaching. So you look at a person, you say, there's a person in a big body, in a little body, in a man's body, in a woman's body, whatever it is, Everybody wants to be happy. May you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy. So it's very reinforcing. It's, a, it's an elaboration of having in your mind's eye all of your friends and closest intimates come up for a meta blessing. It's everybody who you don't know. 
And so all beings coming up for a blessing. So, so let's do it with eyes open. So, you don't have to do anything special. This is a four-hour practice. You don't have to do anything special. You don't have to sit in a funny way. All you have to do is sit and uh, wish well. You can say phrases. Let's see if we can do this for uh, 10 minutes.
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 7, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.